Hey, oboists, have you checked out MKL Reads lately? MKL is the one-stop shop for handmade oboe reads where you can try reads from various makers and then select the one that is best for you. How cool is that? Visit mklreads.com and enter coupon code double space read space dish, all caps, for free shipping on your first order. This wouldn't be a double read podcast if we didn't talk about knives and knife sharpening. Since day one, gender read knives have been the highest quality and the sharpest read knives on the market. And Genda Industries has been a driving force in educating double read players on how to sharpen and maintain their read knives since it is the single most important tool in our read making kit. Now, Genda has launched a full line of sharpening equipment to meet your sharpening needs. They are offering a wide variety of full size and travel size sharpening stones, strops, and compounds that can be utilized in the studio, the music hall, or on the go and will make your sharpening better. You've got a great reed knife and now it's time to start using good sharpening equipment. Add the code DRDGENDA, all caps, no spaces, at checkout and get 10% off any Genda Reed Knife Maintenance Kit, Reed Knife Sharpening Book, Cutting Block, and Reed Tool Roll. Visit them at www.gendaindustries.com. Oh, and they're more than just reed knives. Hi, I'm Galit Kaunitz. And I'm Jackie Wilson. And you're listening to Double Read Dish. A podcast for oboists, bassoonists, and the people who love them. So I feel a little silly even recording this because I'm going to see you in like 24 hours. (laughs) (laughs) So excited. So IDRS is happening. It starts tomorrow. Yep. And uh, I am driving down with from Hattiesburg to Tampa with my amazing bassoon colleague, Kim Woolley. Shout out to Kim. And a bassoon student named Camilo. So we are going to be hopping on down in our rental car through a hurricane. There is a category one hurricane that's hitting the Gulf. Um, I'm surprised it's not raining as we record, but (laughs) we're going to be escaping a hurricane while we bop on down to Tampa. (laughs) Well, humidity makes reeds happy. So God, hashtag blessed. (laughs) It's nature's moisturizer. (laughs) How are you getting to IDRS? Well, tomorrow morning, we're obviously recording this on Saturday, I will be playing my first Bach cantata, not my first Bach cantata, but I'm teaching at this Lutheran camp, Lutheran summer music. And so once a summer, they do a traditional liturgical cantata setting. And that is tomorrow. And I'm super psyched about that. It's so cool. And then Courtney Miller, who teaches oboe at the University of Iowa, who's at this camp with me, she and I are actually on the exact same flight out from Chicago to Tampa. So she and I are going to hop in the car, do a little Bach, make a little love, get down tonight, and then (laughs) head on over to O'Hare and fly out from there. But I do have to warn people, like the mosquito situation in Indiana is real. 
And every time I walk my dog, I've got like full on pants, hoodie, the hood up. I look like E.T. <laughs> and they still find a way. And I'm like just covered in bites. And I'm just thinking about just how bad it looks. And that's vanity, but I'm covered in mosquito bites, people. So please don't judge when we meet in IDRS. <laughs> So at IDRS, we want to meet every single person who has ever listened to this podcast because we just want to hug every single one of you. And I actually got to do that. I was at Linda Beth Binkley's readmaking camp at Central Michigan University a few weeks ago, and I got to meet some listeners there and it was so fun. So hey, Faith. Hey, Jonathan, I know you're not going to be at IDRS, but everyone else who's going to be at IDRS who listens, come say hi. Well, Galit, is there an event on the schedule where they can be sure to come see us both at the same time? Why, Jackie, yes, there is. Oh, my, maybe we should discuss that. (laughs) We are going to do our live show, which is going to be so hilarious on Wednesday, July 17th at 9.15 a.m. in the Composition Lab. We are going to do our amazing live show with Double Read Family Feud and special guest, Pedro Diaz, English horn player in the Metropolitan Opera Orchestra. Do not miss it. It's going to be fantastic. We are going to make him do the Ling Ling workout and it's going to be epic. (laughs) We also have some of our sponsors on the podcast who are going to be vendors at IDRS. Jackie, tell us who, who is going to be there. Barton Kane will be there. Obo Chicago Nielsen Woodwinds and JDW Sheet Music. And listen, it takes money to run this podcast. It sure does. And our sponsors enable us to keep this resource free. And so if you would go support them and mention that you're a listener of Double Read Dish and that you appreciate them supporting us and keeping Double Read Dish free, we encourage you to do that because we could not do this without the support of our sponsors, truly. A hundred thousand percent. All right. So should we move on to the dish topic now that we've done all of our <laughs> shout outs and plugs? Well, I actually have one more shout out that has nothing to do with IDRS or oh, okay, double great. reads, really. <laughs> um, but I have been going through like many mental epiphanies regarding my mindset as a musician and just pursuing feeling good. And maybe someday we'll get into all that. Maybe not. But um, that stuff that we all struggle with, I went through a period recently of super struggling with it. And one of the things that has been so helpful to me lately has been the Mind Over Finger podcast by Dr. Renee Paul Gauthier. And she does interviews with immensely successful people in the field. Uh, one of my favorite interviews is with Anthony McGill, the clarinetist. I love him. And it's just a great free-flowing conversation about mindset, practice, listening, learning, and the journey. And I have been super inspired by it. And I just encourage everyone to listen because it's been helpful to me and therefore it might be helpful to you. So check it out. I can't wait. I always love a good podcast recommendation. It's good. It's a really good one. Awesome. Okay. So we did a call for 
innovative performances to go with the theme of this episode because we are talking to the incredible Alicia Lawyer who founded and is the artistic director of and plays principal oboe in the Incredible River Oaks Chamber Orchestra. So we wanted to know what were your innovative concerts that you've seen or been a part of or thought of and like what kinds of um, entrepreneurial things have you seen in the field? And we got some great responses. Absolutely. And you talked a little bit about being in the audience for Roco during the interview, but were there any uh, experiences that you've been a part of or witnessed that this criteria to you? I, the only thing that comes to mind is that in thinking about this, I've reflected on my own growth in terms of thinking about innovations in classical music. I remember years ago, I thought I had this really innovative idea. I was like, oh my God, we should do a benefit concert. <laughs> and I felt like it was like so outside the box. Now that my eyes have been opened through more experience and um, seeing what cool things other people are doing, it's been more like, oh, that's innovative. Like this uh, Roco concert I went to and, you know, Wind Sync and Imani Winds mm. and all of these like amazing groups who are off doing the authentic innovations. You know what I mean? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I would shout out Breaking Winds, Bassoon Quartet. In For sure. Well, um, and Acropolis. Oh yeah. A thousand percent. I had a very comparable experience during this interview. Um, I found myself as she was talking and, and discussing some of the things that Roko is doing going, you can do that. Oh, you can do that. Totally. Oh, that's a great idea. I would have never thought of that. And it, it was surprising to me to realize that I felt like I needed permission to let my mind go to those places, but it was just such an inspiring interview to me in that regard of it could really be anything. And and she talks about um, sincere endeavors and kind of knowing which ones to pursue genuinely and which ones are, um, she says, uh, gives examples of some obnoxious uh <laughs> avenues that people can kind of pursue because they're disingenuous. But uh, I felt just so invited to explore my creativity as a result of this interview. You know, the one thing I did think of though is, do you remember when we were both teaching in Wisconsin and we did the Mozart and Marinara Yes. Concert. Oh, and I loved that. That was inspired by a concert that my teacher, Bert Lucarelli, put together um, when I was an undergraduate student as a fundraiser. Yeah, that was uh, Mozart. And then we had a spaghetti feed afterward, all Mozart concert. And uh, I'm a big lover of pairing music and food and concerts and food. And, you know, everything's better with snacks. So I mean, that's true. <laughs> So some of the responses that we got, Scott Miller says, last summer for Manitoba Underground Opera's production of The Coronation of Popea, each instrumentalist was paired with a vocalist to portray a character on stage. The vocalist depicting the character and the instrumentalist representing the character's thoughts, emotions, and motivations. That's a great way to just tap into a deeper concept of musicality and portrayal and stuff. Yeah, that's really cool. Um, so Florida Reads sent in something on Instagram. I love the idea of a children's concert with QR codes displayed 
throughout on a screen. They could scan the QR codes to bring up interactive info about each piece on their phones. And he said that he's done that. He's a middle school band director and he's done that before. Parents love it. Plus you can put program info there so you don't have to waste paper. You can make your own QR code online for free and link it to a website. So he, you can just do that. I had no idea. Yeah, I mean, Alicia talks about that in her interview a little bit too, that Roku has embraced cell phones because they're not going anywhere. Nope. And so if we can find ways to embrace them meaningfully, that is kind of cool. A hundred percent. Amanda says, go organic orchestra. It's a fully improvised performance with any combination of instruments. The conductor uses a series of symbols, matrices, gestures, and a small set of pre-learned melodic and rhythmic units to create different pieces on the spot. They do them all over the world. Definitely one of my favorite groups to play with. That sounds really fun and kind of John Cagey. Mm-hmm. Krista Garvey sent in a submission. Shout out, Krista. I love you. Uh, she is the chief instigator of a collaborative group called Notorious, which is working on a project with aerialist movement artists to tell the story of early immigrant women to our region through new compositions and existing works. The most creative performance I've been a part of included a juggler who juggled glow-in-the-dark balls to art music. Work. Yeah, work. That sounds really fun. (laughs) (laughs) Although, then you would have to play in the dark, and I don't know if my eyes are good enough to do that. We also have a submission from Allie, who says, I co-wrote and co-arranged a show called Concerto for Frenemies with my BFF flutist. We dress up in 18th century costumes, take on diva personas, and play Mozart Concerto K314. It's a play. It's a concerto. It's comedy. It's theater. It's my favorite performance to do. That sounds kind of awesome. I know. I really want to wear a wig. Hey, oboists, have you ever found it difficult to sort out when and how to find a new oboe or English horn? Oboe Chicago streamlines the process, providing personal and professional consultation and a large selection of lovely instruments. The process feels comfortable and thorough. Selection includes Effleuré of Paris, Howarth of London, Covey Oboes, and Fox products. For a credit of $100 towards shipping, mention Double Read Dish when you call or email Shauna. For a current listing of Oboe Chicago's selection, please visit www.oboechicago.com. Hey, let's talk about Jenna Ingalls Reads. She has built her business on providing high-quality, handmade reads, education, and a sympathetic ear to oboists across the country. When you order from Janet Ingle Reads, you get prompt communication, reads, or cane handcrafted to your specifications and cheerful, friendly customer service. All orders are mailed within one week, sometimes much faster. Single orders or monthly read subscriptions are welcome, and she'll work with you to find the combination of response, resistance, stability, and flexibility that is right for you. Podcast listeners can use the code DISH, all caps, for 10% off their first order at JanetIngle.com. That's J-E-N-N-E-T-I-N-G-L-E.com. Uh-huh. 
we are delighted to welcome to Dublin Dish, Alicia Lawyer, founder, artistic director, and principal oboe of the River Oaks Chamber Orchestra. Welcome. Thank you so much. Could we start off by having you tell our audience who you are and what you do? Well, my name is Alicia Lawyer, but I'm not a lawyer. Um, I play the oboe and not the elbow. I just my startup lines whenever I talk about Rope Hill. But um, so I founded an orchestra 15 years ago. And I think just because our field really just needs entrepreneurialism like all the other fields in the world. And I just, it, it's been an interesting ride and exciting. And, um, you know, being a noblest, and I think as a noblest, we all have to have multiple personalities and also just have the right left brain thing. I, I think it's just amazing how many noblest have started their own things as well. Um, that double read thing really gets in there. Mm-hmm. So I went to SMU for my undergrad. I was a physics oboe major and then wound up at Juilliard and uh, we moved abroad for a while. So it was just this kind of mix of a, an unusual path that led to this a really interesting path again to start something entrepreneurially. So River Oaks Chamber Orchestra is in Houston. When I was a master student at UT Austin, I went to one of your concerts. It was probably 2007 or 2008. And it was conductorless. You did Bizet Symphony in C. And I remember being completely blown away by the quality of the performance and the really cool twists you were doing on an orchestral performance. Um, just to describe it for the listeners, the, the program was not ordered. There were these spheres on the program and each piece was was listed inside a sphere. And so we didn't know which piece was going to come next. And the piece before it was performed was announced by a different member of the orchestra, which was so cool. (laughs) We're just like, oh my God, what's coming next? I don't know. (laughs) And then you also did a raffle and invited the winners in the audience to come up and sit inside the orchestra, you had seats interspersed throughout the different sections and experience one of the pieces from inside the orchestra. And then at intermission, the musicians came into the audience and started talking to people in the audience. And it was the coolest thing I have ever seen. Oh, thank you. It's just gone crazy since then. That's what, what, you know, 12 years ago. Um, It's fun too, because, you know, Chris, Chris and my um, double read, partner bassoonist it's just been so much fun because this has been based on relationships and people and being human first which I think our entire field is horrible at and I think being human first is what can save our field and not again that it really needs saving it just needs energy kind of pumped back into it I think that's really all it is and I I think there's a lot of um, vulnerability that needs to be explored on stage. Mm -hmm. And when you, when you can let people, not only audience members, but musicians release into their creativity, there's, there's no end to the exploration that can happen. And so all these small things that seem to me now, like kind of a duh, um, really massively impact the whole experience with house lights up uh, is one of the most 
impactful things because you can actually read the program, but more importantly, it creates a shared space with the audience and musician. So it's a true relationship and you don't feel like you're sitting there witnessing, you're actually sharing. Um, I feel like music too is a language and we don't talk about that at all. We always market the white dead males and we always market the thing that's in between audience and musician as opposed to the actual people. And so that's really where it all started. Um, St. Paul Chamber Orchestra was able to really do an investor model orchestra where they, you know, you get, you buy, you don't have to buy tickets sometimes. You give enough money that you can actually just get tickets or the tickets are inexpensive or free. And that's really how I got to start. And it's just invitational instead of transactional all around. And that's what's been so fun is taking all these risks and explorations and musicians that ride along with it and just and contribute their own dynamic energy that you can't release anywhere else because it's you know a very strange construct that orchestras have had to become in this economy. Well, would you tell our listeners a bit about how you got the idea and then how you went about executing it? Because <laughs> I might have that a cool idea that I would go, oh, there's no way. Oh, that's a that's a fun little pipe dream that would never ever happen. <laughs> and you've built this colossal successful thing. Oh, thanks. Oh goodness. Well, you know, most most people, I mean in our field, we obviously deeply and painfully know that orchestral positions are lifetime tenure jobs. And I would say 90% of our audience do not know that. Even people who donate to your organizations do not know that. And I think it's important to know because of the value of what is happening in an orchestra and the fact that there may be three or four openings a year in oboe across the nation, right, in a professional orchestra. And that's kind of mass, right? So I think when you know that that's the statistic and you are working really hard on that one, you know, line up in either Shostakovich or your Ravel being smooth, connecting that to actually connecting to an audience is really a massive leap, right? And mm-hmm. so when you, what happened to me is you, know, you get out of Juilliard, you go the route of auditioning, um, you, you know, I was getting in some finals, or whatever, but my husband moved to Houston with his job and my family started, you know, I didn't start a family right away. But I was a part of all sorts of things. I, I taught at U of H for a little bit. And then we moved abroad. We moved to France. And I will tell you right now that my oboe, some of my oboe teachers told me not to go, that it would ruin my life. And I think that's kind of strange because I, I don't know any, anyone else that would say that. I understand it and I respect it because there's such a massive difference in playing abroad compared to here for getting in a job. But what happened is I felt really strongly when I went over there that the music, as we all know, is a fabric of people's lives. You feel like it just flows in the community in a way that amateur professionals, side by side, there doesn't have to be a massive distinction between the two. It's very clear. Um, And people, you know, you have dinner party, have some wine, get your instrument. It's really just very cool. And so we wound up back here, which is a little bit of a shock. And I actually did some salon performances over there in tiny, tiny, tiny rooms. And since I'm talking to a double read audience, I will tell you my pain. Um, no one else can respect this at all. Um, but I played in this room that was 15 by 15. No, it had to be 20 by 20, I guess. But it was carpeted, had a mini baby grand piano, and they had about mm, 35 people there. Wow. And I'm playing oboe and piano, right? And I chose why to play the Schumann romances. <laughs> So, yeah, exactly. Thank you. I hope the whole audience is laughing right now. 
fine. I don't mind it. I mean, actually, I, you know, you'll get to know me enough that I, I'm really trying to get a time at a stand-up comedy show at some point, um, amateur night, but uh, kind of not joking about it. So I played this show on pieces, and, you know, there's no reverb in that room at all. And I hadn't really been that close. I mean, truly, I could touch the person next to me in the audience. And these poor people, I, I don't have a ton of, of tension when I play, so I don't, I mean, I don't look great. And I will say I'm vain enough that if I knew what I looked like playing the oboe, I probably would never have picked it. But, I mean, I was sweating, and it always oh, the most miserable. It was fine. And I realized that after it, no one cared. They were like, oh, this is beautiful, right? And so I kind of, that, that was my first step into a much larger world. And that's, I'm a very sci-fi person. But I, it was. It was a step into getting over yourself. And that, that was really helpful. And so then, it, anyway, that was kind of impactful. And I don't usually tell because it's not that interesting. People who aren't oboists. But then I wound up, when we came back to Houston, I was kind of ready for something different, right? Instead of just auditions, because I loved Houston, we were here. And so I start. I, I was part of three startups over the course of 10 years, orchestras. Um, I was oboist and personnel manager and kind of just saw these three different groups, how they did things, what they did, great ideas. Then they came up, went down, and I just found a lot of interest in it. But I will tell you that I felt like there wasn't, going to be a future for me here and I was kind of ready to quit the oboe which is really different but my church renovated and when my church which is an old Frank Lloyd Wright style building um it renovated and I saw the drawings it was truly like starting orchestra you know like a Noah moment and build an ark <laughs> <laughs> and I was like no I don't think so and he's like yeah you, yeah yeah you will hello how long have you said about it um so it was just this idea of, well, who do, I, who do I really want to play with, you know? And it became immediately, who gets over themselves? Who can play a concerto, sit right back down, play an orchestra? Who has a fluidity to who they are as humans? And it became this huge why not risk of take a chance. You know, it's your home base, try it. And so five o'clock concerts on Saturdays, pronunciation guides for composers' names so people don't feel stupid. You know, most people say Mo Mozart and it's Mozart and you should not make this feel bad because then I don't like you anymore. You know, it's this whole idea that we have to be invitational and show people what we do. And it just, that, that's exploded from there. I have many, many layers I'd love to talk about, but I don't want to keep like, I mean, I, as you can tell, I can talk for hours, but about this, because our field is just, is just thirsty and hungry for these kind of things in our own right. But the audience, they don't have to care. There's so much more out there. So, mm -hmm. okay, I'll stop right there for a little bit. I'm just raising my hands in praise right now. <laughs> <laughs> That's so cute. I love that. <laughs> um, okay. So I want to talk about some of the really interesting initiatives that ROCO does. And I would love to ask why, I mean, we all know why these are important, but we don't ever think of them, right? So sure, sure. program notes are accessible for the blind and visually impaired through audio recordings in Braille. You allow adults with autism uh, to experience ROCO in a sensory-friendly environment. You um, have childcare at your performances with you know, certified childcare professionals. And I also read that you use an app 
that allows people to follow along with the performance with interesting nuggets of information as the different themes go by in real time. And it even dims the screen when you enter the app so it doesn't disturb the people around you. I mean, these are really necessary, interesting, exciting innovations. And I'd love to hear you just talk about those. <laughs> okay. Well, my, um, I have a lot of pet peeves. I feel like a 90-year-old lady, which I adore, um, 90-year-old people, because I think we have a huge ageism issue in the, the mm-hmm. world. But that's a whole other pathway to go down. Um, so I think this, we started out right away with Roku Rooters, which was and is our Talk Here Music Education Program. So kids 10 and under get to go to a, a different part of the, the, the area, have a music education program, come into the concert, hear it live for one piece they've learned about, then stay for pizza and movies till 10.30 so parents get a three-and-a-half-hour date night after the concert. So um, I always say we're saving marriages one concert at a time. <laughs> um, yeah, it's a byline. <laughs> I feel like I should run for office. I don't know. I just keep saying these same things over and over again. But it's I, would vote for you. I would vote for oh, you. You're so cute. <laughs> you're so cute. You're so cute. Well, um, yeah, and so the idea that um, this is the first year we've really coalesced all of what we call our access initiative because I didn't finish – one of my big pet peeves is the word outreach. I think it's a ridiculous word um, because we can't reach out into the massive black hole that is the lack of music education and understanding in this universe. What we can do is have them come in and access what we do. So again, invitational. And those words, but it matters. You bring people into what you do as opposed to constantly like we could add, I could add right this second 120 performances to go out and say for every school of the blind, every person who has autism, every, I mean, there's no end to the schools that have dropped music education. So instead, bringing them into what you already do as much as you possibly can and the layerings that happen on just that hour and a half or two of performance can be massively impactful. Um, but I will go back and say that every initiative Number one is based on human relationships, because I didn't just randomly say, oh, hey, let's go play or let's involve blind people. That's obnoxious. What it is, is that one of our sopranos next year is blind and the piece that's being written for her commission is based on hidden women's voices. And so that led to me reaching out to Lighthouse for the Blind Houston here and saying, hey, let's form a relationship, and I don't want it to be for one concert. And so then they did an assessment of our website and said, here's how you can improve that for uh, visually impaired people, and here's the place to do the, the programs in Braille that we're not just going to do for blind people. We're going to do it for sighted so people can see. You know, just all these ways of not just making it pedantic, the idea that you're just doing it to check the box is just not important. But the other thing is, they know I'm not this woman that is started this thing called Spectrum Fusion for adults with autism, because I do think there's a ton of programming for children. And I think that what's lost is when you turn 30 as a professional musician, opportunities are gone. And I think that happens um, with adults in their lives. No one cares about their pilot light. No one cares about where their journey is in discovery. And so my passion is for actually older people and, and elderly, too, that the pilot light keeps going. And so... It's multi-generational audiences is really important to me and, and us and our values. Um, and so that's kind of where all this came from. It wouldn't, again, just be like this random thought, which, yes, of course, I have random thoughts and we, we jump on them. But it's really because it's based on a personal relationship. So the only time we've ever done music education, traditional music education, is in this past year or two because of a relationship. I'm going to use that word ad nauseum with our principal trumpet and this band director who has a Title One school, which is this really you know underprivileged school. But he's, his band program has exploded. 
and they we all played for him and he got a bus to come to our concerts and so we have a personal relationship with these kids that know their name like the cheers of orchestras everybody knows your name now you know how old i am um (laughs) this, this idea this idea that you really are are doing it not because you want to look right it's not surface so we also have a line in our bylaws that i hand wrote in that says no jerks are allowed in organizations mm. i actually changed it to to say we assure a culture of kindness but it really means we no jerks are allowed mm-hmm. and so i think that's a big piece too because toxicity in our field can actually be really damaging mm-hmm. there's so much toxicity only because people feel i love your question about imposter syndrome we all feel imposter um, and I think that's where we stop taking risks and stop being vulnerable. And um, I had somebody come in the orchestra and kind of play once, and she felt like she's always having to be in a bubble when she's in an orchestra. And she kept saying, and I, I kept reaching over and popping the bubble to make her like, connect, you know? Mm-hmm. And so that's really, really important. That's what all that's about is connection. Mm-hmm. How does that idea of popping the bubble integrate itself into your teaching? How do you infuse the young musicians that you work with with that idea? So I don't have a studio anymore. I um, I used to have a really strong, like, eight-person intense all-state kind of studio when I was first here and uh, first time I was in Houston. I had to drop the teaching um, and stop at U of H just because this is more than a full-time job with Roco. Our budget's $1.2 million. Um, it's, you know, it's 36 concerts and 16 venues, live streamed to the world, broadcast nationally. You know, I mean, it's on and on and on. So I had to, I miss it, um, desperately, but I will tell you that what I do now for what I feel like my teaching is supposed to be, even though I, I have so much to impart with oboe because it's so much it's supposed to be about not tension and all that stuff, but is entrepreneurialism is almost career counseling in a way. I go around the nation talking to school, universities, colleges, and just talking to them about entrepreneurialism and the arts, I call my talk wildcatting in the arts. And just this idea that, um, you know, whatever you're doing, take your risks, do unusual things. I mean, I was a DJ for a radio station for a little while, and it, was, it wasn't that cool. It was classical. But, you know, um, we had, it was just such a great experience to now be very comfortable in interviews, comfortable on radio, and just take those risks, take those interesting steps that might feel out of place and, and how you put that towards what you do and always feel that human is first. I guess that's where my huge preaching comes from that because when Harvey hit here in Houston, it's not okay to immediately grab your instrument and play for people to make them happy. Instead, you'd need to probably a hammer and a boat and help them get out of their house and feed them and clothe them first, then play music after you've all had wine, you know? And mm-hmm. so I, that's, that's my huge message to our whole field is, yeah, you do have to play at the top of your level and you do have to do the work it takes, but you have to also find a way to stay connected. I always ask at the end of my talk, I say, can you guys do me a favor that at your next really bad gig, like you're playing a gig that you can't understand why you still play an instrument, right? And I want you to look out in the audience and find that little lady who is so happy you're there, like just beaming that music is happening where she is and go thank her afterward. It will change mm-hmm. your life. So that's really, that's what I impart, try to impart to people. Were there early influences um, in your oboe development that um, caused you to think outside of the box in this really exciting way? How did you, how did you um, develop as an oboist and what were maybe some formative experiences for you? 
I would say that the the trajectory of the oboe experience is completely and solidly not anything to do with, with the entrepreneurial thing. <laughs> but what but but what was very important is to be able to have such a solid foundation to then keep my playing at a level that I don't I'm feel comfortable broadcasting nationally my performances of mm-hmm. oboe solos or whatever. Um, so that to me is vital because I played with you know I played with Eric Barr and I studied with John Ferrillo. And then a little bit with Kilmer and DuVos and, you know, a tiny bit with Mac. We all had smatterings of the things that we've done. Um, but I came from the Genovese school, you know, and it was really very, just a very freeing sound, but without um, tension, which I think is so important. And then also being a physics major, this idea of kind of efficiency. And I think that's important too, of efficiency, not only making reads, you can do them fast and do them like once a week and make what you need or whatever but also efficiency and performance. So you can do, um, it, you know, one of the hardest things to do, which I do constantly, is you'll talk to Rotary about Roco. I'll talk to a Rotary club and I'll talk for 20 minutes and then pull out my oboe while they're asking questions and then I'll play a piece for them. And, you know, that kind of fluidity is really challenging if you don't have the goods to back it up, right? And mm-hmm. so that's, that's what's hard. But I feel really privileged and I had all these years to buckle down and really practice to the nth degree. And I did. And I will tell you the one person who kind of set me on a trajectory that she had no idea about was Kathy Barr, who is Eric's wife, um, Dallas. And she's a phenomenal pedagogue herself and the oboist. And I took from her, you know, since sixth grade. And I was ready to go to UT for physics. And I took my last lesson in July, right before I left for college. And she's like, you can't stop playing the oboe. (laughs) And so she kind of got me into SMU with Eric to, to take there. And she really like wrenched me into a different trajectory and then I kind of have this weird story right sort of I accidentally auditioned at Juilliard <laughs> and so I got I got in there that was a big shift as well um it's it's a kind of a funny story well now we need to hear the story <laughs> okay. <laughs> okay well John Ferrillo too I mean he was one of those guys that you know the really you, you have you play an A for the whole hour you know you just figure it out you you analyze and detailize and wipe out any any problems in your playing. And so I just remember starting over on my own. I mean, my choice, but going to, um, you know, ballet studios and sitting in front of the long mirrors and just sitting so close, I could see every minuscule movement of my fingers and trying to make sure scales had the most efficient movement possible. And so just that kind of work, you know, playing um, the blue tumble, knowing it starts ahead of time. All those things are really important to the detailed work that I don't have to do anymore, if that makes sense. Um, mm-hmm. But uh, yeah, so I was supposed to audition at another school in New York, I won't say which, and um, I was supposed to do that on a Tuesday. And my fiance and I were, my fiance, were there on Saturday and Sunday, and we were touring around New York on Sunday, and I was a very green person, which means down here in the South that you're very not experienced person about the world. So I'm walking around, and I'm like, oh my gosh, look, it's Lincoln Center, and that's so cool. And then I'm like, whoa, that's Juilliard, that's a good school. <laughs> so this was way before, you know, anything technological, even ATMs, honestly. And so we go up to the door, and this, this guy's standing there, and there's a chair that says, has a sign that says we are not open do not come in so I went in (laughs) I'm telling you it was like I was a robot I just did what I was you know being told to do in my brain but I went in and I out of my mouth to this woman who was on the phone I was like I want to audition for your school 
And it's super obnoxious. And I mean, people knowing me know I'm bold, but I'm not, hopefully they don't think I'm ridiculously obnoxious, but I just did. And this woman kind of hung up the phone and she looked at me like, what? She goes, what do you play? And I said, I'll play the oboe. And she goes, oh my gosh, I just hung up the phone. I got a cancellation for oboe at 440 on Tuesday. Can you make that? And our flight was at eight. And I'm like, oh, sure. <laughs> <laughs> so this was back when it wasn't that hard to get in the airport. Uh-huh. But yeah, and so I, I had to borrow her library card. She was head of admissions. And she let me check out all the music on Mondays. It was, very, it was completely different than the music for the other school I was auditioning for. So I had to practice all day Monday on that new music. It was just really funny. And she called me the next day. She's like, I'm not supposed to call you, but you just got into Juilliard. <laughs> You're like a homeless person that walks in off the street. That's amazing. So it was crazy. It was, <laughs> it was crazy. So it was great. And, and if you talk about trajectory and oboe-wise trajectory, I mean, John Perillo with the sound and tone and um, I was, I also formed a trio there called Trio True There. And we did tons and tons and tons of gigs in New York City in the environment there. And um, it was called, I guess, a Trio True There and an oboe, flute, and bassoon. And Kristen Jensen, who's in my orchestra with Rocco, was in that group. And I have so many gig stories, which is what I want to do at the Houston Improv Comedy Club. It'll be stories because we played the Mafia Wedding. We played um, out in Long Island. We did, I swear, we did a, um, a Buddhist monastery and our performance um, welcomed a man back into the speaking world because he'd taken the thousand day vow of silence. I mean, what? we have these insane, yeah, we have these insane gig stories like over and over again. And I thought this was normal, right? And like I was playing with Marin Allstop out in New Jersey, the only oboist on tour with her group Concordia and my oboe swab got stuck in the, in the middle of the performance. And I, <laughs> what? <laughs> like that. Yes, yes. Yes, I have like so many gig stories. I could go. We need to make this a whole series. I'm just saying. <laughs> but, yeah. Okay, wait, 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 wait. We have to hear okay. one of those. You just pick one. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> well, I, oh God, I think I think for oboists, it's probably the slob stuck in the oboe. Um, okay. Yeah, I was I was super young because you know Concordia's. It was a. It's a, still. It was a great group, and they needed an oboist very last minute, and so um, Elaine Vos told called me and I went on the very on this kind of short tour I was it was oboe and English horn and so I was like I said only oboist and we went out I don't even remember where we played New Jersey but um in the middle um of in the middle of the whole concert I you know swapped and I used to pull through I obviously don't but um there wasn't a knot it's just the very tip end of it not like fused and it was the very end right before the end and so I couldn't even back it out um, I, you know, I was sort of panicked, but I actually read the rest of the concert on English horn and I don't transpose that well, but it's amazing what you can do when you're panicked. Um, it's like, I intermission, like, you know, trying to write, trying to write the notes in. It was just so bad. But, um, the worst part was I had to go, you get it drilled out before the next day when we were actually playing down at World, the World Trade Center. Um, we played a concert there and, I went to a repair person who I also will not mention who, when she tried to get it out, drilled into my bore. And um, yes, I told you guys are so funny. She's like, oh, I'm so stressed. Right now. I know, right? No, totally. Oh my gosh. No, it's the worst, right? And so, so then I had to call, you know, Ferrillo and he let me borrow an instrument. But I mean, this all had to happen within 24 hours before cell phones, right? And um, so. So it, I got into that. I got down there like right when they were about to tune, and I had gone on, on on stage, and it was truly one of those horrific oboe nightmare moments. 
you know, I'm like half the age of people in orchestra. I just walked out. Marin knew I got my oboe thing stuck, but I did make the re the rehearsal. But my re my re oh sorry, my reads were back my reads were backstage somewhere, <laughs> and so I didn't have my reads in tune. Horrifying. That was It was just like this awful oboe thing. So yeah. So <laughs> there you go. <laughs> wow. So was your oboe ruined after that? Yeah, pretty much. Oh, no. It played, but it had a big gouge in the, you know, oh, in the inside of the board. I'm so sorry. Was that the most yeah, stressful was... experience of your entire life? Oh, no. I mean, <laughs> no, because... <laughs> no, because again, I mean, it's just an oboe. Some, you know, somebody played an A for the violin that was fine, and it's just an oboe. You know, my my kid was born with a cord around his neck, and we thought he had died, and he didn't. And so that was probably the most stressful. You know, things like that are more important, and they're much more vital. And I know I'm just this old wise woman now, but that's kind of that's kind of where I go. I think we are so, like I said, multiple personalities is really stressed in OCD, and you have to be to play the oboe. But I don't know. I think if we can get past ourselves a little bit, and actually, frankly, invite the audience into these kind of moments of wow, that happened. You know, I've, I've had one time, only one time where my read broke um, in performance last year. It was a small chamber concert thing. And um, yeah, it, just, it dropped on the floor because it was very dark. It was in this historical home. It's a long story. It's one of these things we do, um, kind of do trick-or-treating for music where people go house to house for the concerts. And um, But it was really dark in the room and I just totally dropped my read and stepped on or something. But when you put it in the oboe and it sounds bad, you go, oh, look what I did. I stepped on my reed. That's ridiculous. And then you put another one in and you talk to the audience and you, you bring them into your own human experience and it, it matters dramatically. Absolutely. So you mentioned that your mother, uh, you play in Rocco and you're obviously in this administrative capacity and you seem to have a really great perspective about um, humanity and personhood. So what is your approach to work-life balance and how do you do that in your very busy life? I'm obviously in a huge extrovert and I get my energy through people. Mm -hmm. So that's always helpful. Um, and I know a lot of people aren't and they're introverts and that's very hard. Um, also, I think a lot of my time is spent raising money. Um, that's what I do a lot. Um, I would say you have to ruthlessly prioritize. And I would even say, let's just start with remaking. Um, I think I learned that in remaking. Lindy Voss always said, learn to make reads faster to ruin your life. And I understand that. Um, if you can eliminate the cane before it even gets to the gouging stage, if you can eliminate and be so hyper picky about it being totally flat before you, but the amount of time you waste and in all the process, you know, the color of the cane, the, density of to use it if it's you know whatever your choice is that you're making but um if you can ruthlessly i mean just and it's so painful because you know it's so expensive but to just say mm, i'm going to use maybe one out of ten of these tubes you know something like that and just commit to it then whatever's in that box that you're about to make that you've already got you know shaped mm -hmm. is going to turn into a read unless you know human error which happens but it's going to happen and so i think that happens with every other thing um you can do in your life it's you, for just well, here's an example for fundraising, I can go and I have and I do it often. Go to coffee, coffee, lunch, lunch, two lunches, car, you know, carpool, coffee, wine. I do it a lot, and now I don't have the carpool because they drive. But um, 
you, you know that you need to make those times valuable and you know that you have to say, well, is this person really interested or am I just kind of going and hanging out? And that's also prioritization. Then, um, you know, you, your friends, you have to, I have a list, I know this sounds ridiculous, but I have a list of friends on my refrigerator or my, uh, in my kitchen of people I want to keep in my mind that I keep checking in with, that I keep in touch with, that, that keep that relationship happening so that I am not swept into a hole where I don't, again, have human interaction, that all the interaction is about business. Um, you know, ruthlessly prioritize. Just realize you, you're going to be a mom. You have to, like at 3.30, my whole, my whole office, we're actually all female office, but we have a family-friendly policy that um, you bring your baby until they're six months old, and that's fine, and, you know, these kind of things. And and at 3.30, they've known I've gone, I've leave every day. And actually, I'm not in the office that often. I'm out asking for money but um, or practicing or whatever. But I think that's the biggest word, is ruthless prioritization in everything you do. You, you have to do it. I do it on an hourly basis, I would say. I'd be like, does this really need to get done right this second? I mean, what's the top? And I will tell you, I go to probably a sticky pad of uh, notes at least once a week, an entire sticky pad, because I'm constantly rewriting what's the top, what's the top, what's next, what's the top. And then I'll, I'll have tons of other lists of, okay, later or whatever. Um, but that's, that's the key. Would you mind going into some details of your um, cane selection process? You know, I, we have a lot of... Um, we have a lot of listeners who are students and who are in the beginning of their readmaking journey. And I'm sure they'd be interested to hear about, you know, what constitutes a good piece of cane. Oh, sure. Um, I mean, I personally just like the denseness when it's inside. I like it to be more dense, um, not too brown, not, um, not that the outside streak brown is fine. It's the interior part when it's not too gray or ashy, the ash is horrible. Mm -hmm. Um, if you, and you can find all this if you line them up, I used to even have, I mean, talk about OCDAs, have like my own little 10, you know, 10 step process of, well, maybe it should be 12 step with our, you know, our problems, in Oba. but, um, <laughs> you know, no, no ash, no, um, no deep, um, how do you say it? Those, those veins that can pop in. I don't use that. Um, so, and I, you know, what you can do is take your, um, take your nail and, you know, push into it, especially on one, if you want to have like a test for yourself, do this, kind of line them up and maybe just five different ones and, you know, dig in with your nail and you can see if it goes too deep, too quick, it's too soft and you'll get instant vibration, but you're not going to get projection. And then if you dig in and it doesn't go, if it doesn't go at all, then you're probably going to have, it's going to be a little bit harder to find vibration on the read. So it's got to have be kind of in, in between, but more toward the hard with your nail. So it does dig in slightly, but it's that that will tell you how you're going to be able to scrape. Mm -hmm. um, that's how I do it. And then you know, I, I again, I'm ruthless about it being completely flat. And you, you know, the um, diameter gauge you can use you can use the back of that because it's one of the. I will tell you, the hardest thing to find is a mm -hmm. flat line. So many things are machined, you know, not purposely for that. But I will find at least mine has, has, is very flat, the back of the, the um, diameter gauge. So that's what I hold up to see. And then I usually try to use 10.5. That's been great for me. Um, I have a Ferrello gouge that I am just like, I, I'm in Nirvana with um, instant depth and up, up pitch. And then I use a very weird shaper tip that was a Robinson bar prototype. So 
Um, it's that similar shape, but that's what I use. And yeah, it, I mean, it, just, it, it seems to work. I use the Loray tube and the kind of basic things like that. But yeah, it's, you know, and then the real, real clear, you know, cross section, um, not too short of hips, probably three or four millimeters. Try to end at 70. Mm-hmm. I tie at 72. Some people, I think a lot of people tie a little too long and then wind up too short. And, and you wind up kind of remaking the tip mm. all the time as opposed to just being, again, super ruthless about, okay, it's 72. Once I clip, like, lower your 70 to 71. And then you kind of, I mean, still to this day, I'll put a pencil mark on don't go past this in the back for your, you know, your size of your tip. And, and don't scrape the back too early. That's other critical mistake. You can outline it, but never scrape it too early. Outlining it meaning, like, taking the bark off, but then just kind of leaving it alone. Yeah, I do a little bit. It's kind of all together. I try to make it all together. Um, kind of. I will tell you that when I rough scrape, I almost go all the way to where I want my heart to be. Mm-hmm. I mean, I kind of really do. Not not all the way, but that way everything is a little bit similar. And then tip, 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 and then clip. And then that way you set your tip. You do a little bit more in the heart and a little bit back. And then after you start to refine, you can do some more in the back. But the, 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 I always mess up when I try to do the back too too mm-hmm. early. Mm-hmm always or or if I haven't made a read in a week or two and I because that's just me I have to you know make them and play on them and then go make raise money and then go make them and play on them. <laughs> so um but that's just kind of the cycle but um but yeah when I when I haven't made a read in a, a week or two I'll I'll wind up not making the tip thin enough mm. early enough too and that's always so there you go <laughs> I hadn't talked about that stuff in a long time <laughs> Thank you for that. That's very helpful. No, no, it's really, it's really critical. I think that's the hardest thing is this idea of, I think we waste a lot of time on remaking and there's tiny things you can do. Like, I don't understand. And you guys can please educate me about this. I don't understand how people use one knife for both things because logic shows that a a knife that needs to scrape the, the edge should shape face forward and the edge that's used to clip faces down. So I don't see how you can use one knife for both things. I haven't done that. I use one knife for, you know, rough scraping and getting the bark off. And I use one knife for more fine tuning, but I usually use a razor blade to clip. Sure. Right. Great. Yeah. But yeah, I I agree with you. It doesn't make sense. Would you mind if we took a hard left and I asked you about money? Because I think one of the most intimidating things, even if people are really excited about being an entrepreneur and they have great ideas, there's this big blank spot of how do I end people by being too direct? And, you know, how have you found success in that endeavor? Well, if you're asking money for yourself, it's hard and it's actually really uncomfortable and, um, but if you have a purpose beyond yourself, if you really are talking about, I mean, as far as Roco goes, we're not just about concerts. We truly are about changing the sector. We're about trying to lead people into a different space of what music can be. We commission continuously. We just finished our 79th World Premier Commission. Uh, we will reach 100 next year. We have 21 plans for next year. And we are the third largest commissioning group in the United States. And so saying that kind of stuff makes it pretty easy to say, and that costs money. <laughs> and we have all this great support from foundations and all this, but would you consider blah, blah. And I think that's, and a lot of times, again, if you're in a relationship with people, and I'll be honest, I've, I've, I'm always honest, but I, I mean, I'll just say that 
I ask for people sometimes immediately, like if they go to coffee, it'll be like, hi, I'd love for you to be a part of this after we've had, but I will tell you if I have a coffee that's 45 minutes, probably 35 or more of that minutes is getting to know the person and talking about things. And even if they're a longtime donor, it's just catching up. It's just, it's being in relationship with them. Um, there's only been a couple of times <laughs> that on a, you know, in an elevator, I find, you know, people are trapped and so <laughs> you can talk to them <laughs> quickly. Um, but I've been super blunt, you know, I'm like, Hey, you know, Hey, I have an orchestra. And, and then, you know, people can be, they can tease and be funny. And I'd be like, yeah, you know, you need to support what we do. And, but that's, that's not going to get anywhere. Um, again, I don't know if you've ever seen Ben Zander's video about mm -hmm. shining eyes. It's a video he did. Yes. Phenomenal. So I really took that to heart in the idea that I want our tickets to be, I wish they could all be free. If they were free, people would value them. So they have to have some value. So 35 bucks, but um, I will hand them out to you. I'll be like, come, here's a ticket. I don't, you know, it's fine. If you come to my concert and I, the house lights are up for another sneaky reason, I can see you. And if you have shining eyes and you like what we do, then you get a copy of the taste. Oh, I love that. That's in the way. And it's very funny on our last board meeting, um, new board members and everybody told stories about how they got to Roco and everyone was like, well, I went to coffee with Alicia. <laughs> and um, <laughs> and, and, so, and it, it's growing beyond me, which is great. Like two or three board members are from other board members. So it, it's really starting to go viral if you could say it that way. But I would say when you first start up, you just have to be very blunt. And um, pick another big pet peeve is do not start an organization and don't and, and not pay your musicians. Mm -hmm. Just don't do it. If you have an idea, go borrow from the bank and pay your musicians. It won't work. It's not okay. They're not hobbyists. If you want to be treated like professionals and act like one, and that just really drives me crazy. So um, I had somebody call me to get, I get to do a lot of consulting. I'm not paid yet, unfortunately, because most people can't afford it with, you know, nonprofit, but um I do a lot of talks to people and one person called and was like, Hey, we're going to try to have a fundraiser. We, you know, we got the cost so much that we can't pay the musicians. So I was like, um, play in a barn, you know, go pick the flowers in the field, make some funny brownies because you're California and, pay <laughs> you know, I mean, like, <laughs> what is wrong with you? You know? So it, it's just, I don't understand that concept. Mm -hmm. It doesn't make sense. Okay. Does that help? I don't know. I think asking for money and oh, so being clear about what you actually need. Like, even if you are starting something and you're like, I'm going to play three concerts next year. That's what I did out of the blue. I'm like, I have an orchestra. And I tell you, talk about imposter syndrome. It took me a year and a half because I was executive director. You know, I'd call myself that to say I'm executive director without kind of giggling a little bit. Like, mm. yeah, sure. You know, I mean, you got to kind of speaking into existence is kind of a little bit sci-fi as well as saying when you say it out loud or it's almost spiritual you say it out loud it comes into being mm -hmm. um speaking into being and then that's also the case about your own salary i mean even if you're starting a small chamber thing you you need to put even if it's the, the line is zero you got to put it in there it's something that's necessary um it's it's not just self-care it's actually not an intelligent business platform to go to people and ask for money when you aren't paying yourself um, they won't respect that they're business people. And I will mm. end with this. People are rich because they don't give away their money. Mm -hmm. Going after rich people is not the wisest idea. Going after the usual suspects you see in all the other programs of performing arts, it took them years to get these people. Going after people of friends that you know that have a small business that can give you $500 or $250 
is the best way to start. And, you know, no pie in the sky ideas of major foundations or anything like that yet. So that's the big deal. That's awesome. Can you talk to us a little bit about how you select which composers to commission and therefore which voices to bring to the stage? Um, you know, okay, I bet now you can, you know exactly what I'm going to say. It all comes through relationships. <laughs> um, commissions are, I mean, a good example is I always have our principals rotate in solo. We don't have guest soloists unless they're singers or something like that um, because our principals are soloists going around the nation. Half the musicians don't live in Houston. They fly in to play in the orchestra. And um, so, and that was, again, just based on because I wanted to have a collection of people who I knew and who are unique in that way of getting over themselves on stage and actually looking like they not rather take a bullet, which a lot of us do when we're playing classical music. But um, I did say that out loud. Um, okay. But classical musicians have this kind of thing where they don't want to use the word entertainment. And it's a dirty word for us. Um, and I don't think it should be. I think you are there for the enjoyment of the audience to wanting to experience what you do. I don't mean that you have to smile falsely because that's silly too. But you do have to find a way to show your own joy or your own experience in your body. Um, anyway, that's another lecture. Um, sorry. So you had asked about composers. Um, they obviously start coming to me more because we've done so much conditioning. But a good example is our, our trombonist wanted, I told him it's your turn to solo. Would, would you like money to commission? And he picked out Dorothy Gates, who wrote, writes for the Salvation Army Band and is the librarian. And he wanted her to write a piece based on Doug Hammerstein, who is the Swedish ambassador, because he's Swedish, that died in a plane crash in the 50s. And so she wrote that piece based on D-A-G, Doug, and it's been performed over and over after Rocco um, multiple times, because, again, it came from a really authentic place. Um, a lot of things are like Derek Bromel is a really good friend of mine from, we went to bands together, and um, I did the huge mistake, which actually Oboist will find this hilarious. Um, I, I made the huge mistake with him sitting on the hill after having a couple of Canadian beers and telling him, look, I can play the oboe without a reed in it, and I can buzz in it like a trumpet, and it makes this really cool sound, but it's, it's stupid, right? It needs to, it's a party trick. Well, he's like, no, no, I need to write for that. I'm like, no, no, do not. <laughs> and so, <laughs> so he hasn't yet, but I've been, you know, I've been friends with him forever, so he's one that we commissioned, and um, just really sometimes they don't really have a theme like next year, this whole Lisa Bialava that came to me for this idea of co-commissioning for this great piece for the blind, for Laurie Rubin, the mezzo soprano, um, like Bruce Adolf, we played one of his pieces and I had, uh, uh, had programmed it. It was so phenomenal, very difficult to listen to, not something that's so atonal. You don't want to hear it, but it was very challenging. And I asked him, I said, I want to commission you. And, What's so cool is it leads down a path of the Holocaust Museum in Houston is reopening this next year. And I used to be a docent there because I was super passionate about their mission and just because. And it's reopening. And I was like, okay, let's talk about this. And he wanted to write a piece based on Alma Rosa, who's Mahler's niece, who was the head of the orchestra in Auschwitz and who was who perished, who was murdered in the Holocaust. And um, and then I said, well, wait a minute. I'd love for you to actually write three pieces, a triptych. I want you to write a piece for orchestra, a piece for chamber group, and a piece for solo instrument. So you can show the breadth and depth of Rocco because we're kind of hybrid. And so he's written these three pieces, and we're going to play a couple of them in the new Holocaust Museum. So it, you see how it can really have these schemes that connect everything together. And that's, mm -hmm. that's what I think is more important. And one of the things we also discovered 
And out of these 100 commissions, we have maybe 60 composers. So we've recommissioned, we're in relationship and engagement with them. But what's exciting for us and what we're starting to work on to our website is a page based on these commissions that show the other performances, or at least talk about them. Like Rena Esmel's piece has been performed 12 more times after Rocco's performed it. And to me, that's lifeblood of what we do. It's not shell. She is incredible. Yeah. Yeah. She's actually going to be um, one of our people the following season. But yeah. Oh, but, that's amazing. Yeah. Oh, and she wrote a piece for Oboe and Viola for me. So just FYI. Ooh. It's really hard. Oh, my stars. It's like a raga. Yeah. Her music is so, it's so hard. <laughs> Fabulous. And I will tell you this funny story. So it's one you have to travel, like you have it on five stands or something, you know, you travel to play it with the violas. And so these ragas and this kind of thing, and they're, I mean, it's so hard. And at the end of it, I have this idea, drama of it to click off the light in, in the space. And it was actually quite peaceful. I was like 80 people in the room. And um, it was so dark already that at the very end, I couldn't find the, the stage. <laughs> I was doing this oh, stupid no. dance with my fit. Anyway. But yeah, she's fabulous. So there's just there's just so much there that's just so so much fun. And I, I mean, so like this this idea we're having next year is called the 15 Project, season 15, fanfares, interludes, and finales. Um, one of the composers that I'm good friends with, Mark Buller, asked us to curate this thing where people will write two to three minute miniatures of fanfares, interludes, or finales that we sprinkle throughout the season. And they're up and coming or really well-known composers. And he, he made it very clear about, you know, we're going to have three, we have half women. We're going to have, you know, this many from Africa, this many from, I mean, it's amazing what he's done with the diversity of it. And it's in a, on our brochure, but, but I mean, so these things come that way, I guess is my point is um, through suggestions by musicians or um, submissions and then interest or a dialogue. Um, one of the, so we, we did release our first commercial CD. And it was on a label, a Nova label. And what I did is ask the musicians what pieces their their favorites were over the years we'd played. And they picked commissions. So six or five of our world premiere commissions. So these are pieces that we already premiered and we put in the studio. But unfortunately, after two years of planning this project, it was during Harvey and we had to cancel it. Um, it just so happened that we were able to reschedule it that whole year. It's a total bad thing that happened. And so we were able to do it. But what happened was, Tony DeLorenzo is on the on the CD of the Jabberwocky is the piece he wrote. And that, that was one of the only personal things I've inserted, my favorite poem, so I asked him to write it. But um, And I, Harvey, we were, you know, struggling here in Houston so much, and we were about to open our season. And I said, you know, Tony, we need to have a stand for, I was just truly thinking two trumpets, right, um, for, for Harvey. We need heroes of Harvey fanfare. And this was on a Sunday. And he goes, well, when do you need this? I said, well, by Wednesday. <laughs> and he's like, okay. Well, <laughs> he trusts me. He hung up the phone and like 30 minutes later had gotten this amazing theme. And it's called Anthem of Hope, Houston Strong. And we premiered it, but we also open sourced it to ask all of Houston to perform it over the course of that year. And so he wrote it for string quartet for all these different iterations, high school band. Uh, it was performed over um, around 20 times this, that year with Houston Grand Opera down to you know high schools to string quartets and things um, just to kind of blanket the city with this piece. So things like that are just so exciting to me. That is fantastic. Thank you. <laughs> Alicia, what advice do you have for young musicians who aspire to have a career like yours? <laughs> um, take great risks. Be, be really good at your own skills. Um, 
and it just just so that you don't get knocked off your your you know knocked awry when the other parts of what you're trying to create are are a struggle. Um, make sure you have really strong relationships with people who love you, but also tell you no all the time on mm-hmm. purpose. Because surround yourself with people who say no, um, to, so that you feel really comfortable bouncing stuff off. But also say yes to things that are important that may, they may not understand. Um, I think it's hard, especially again with introverts. I know a lot of voice but you're either one way or the other with an but right? You just are. And I think with introverts, it's difficult because you you really need to trust people to be in deep relationship. And I think trying to be an entrepreneur that way, you have to find your equal partner that's an extrovert that can go alongside you. It doesn't have to be a relationship. It can just be a business partner. But I will just say that if you are that kind of person, don't rely on other people to totally raise money for you because a lot of people have delusions that they just hire a development director and they're fine. I mean, our development director is facilitator, but that's not who sells the thing. And so, I, yeah, I think I, I would just say for take those chances. I don't think that, I mean, I was in the pageant world. Yeah. I'm just saying it. And back in the high school and, and that sounds ridiculous, but it also made me comfortable on stage. Right. And so um, just these things that, might be opportunities. Like I didn't really have an Epo job, and I heard that this this radio station needed a DJ, and I went in, and I had no communications degree, but I knew how to say books to Huda or Beethoven, and I got the job, and I only knew what three buttons did, and they left me overnight in the studio to be the night till dawn girl, and it was terrifying, but I did it, and I'm just saying these kind of odd tangential things can lead to something in your life, and and I know you have to gun and gun for it, especially if you're in the audition scene, but there's also there's also, I mean, what, what if you do get that job? Um, what, what if, what if you do get that job? Um, they're going to tell you what to play and you mm-hmm. don't really pick it. And, you know, you have to be collegial and you have to, you just don't get, you can't reach your hand to a conductor and go, well, I'd rather play it like this, which is what we do. You know, um, we audition conductors, we don't, you know, and, and, and so that's really difficult when you learned how to be your own self and play exactly how other people are wanting. And then, it's, it can be unfulfilling that way. And so a lot of people find other things to do on the side that are filling that void of creativity. Um, so I don't know. I think just being, I feel like I'm just rambling at this point. But yeah, I do. I, do. I have a lot to say, but it really, I guess, would depend on who I'm speaking to. I think mm-hmm. that if there's, if there's somebody with certain skills that are like writing, oh, okay, here's another one. If you're going to start an organization, please make sure you want professionalism in all realms of your organization so that you're insisting the music be professional. So why don't you make sure your accounting is, you know, don't just let the trumpeter be your accountant unless he or she is an accountant. You know, I think that's a mistake too. We try to farm out the things that we, we want them to be respectful of us as professional musicians, but yet we're not creating professional business models. Um, but, and, and, there's, and let me take this back too, that there are, fabulous amateur community orchestras, vitally needed for our world. I have utmost respect. And in Houston, other than Houston Symphony Rocco, that's what exists. It's kind of crazy that Dallas has all these other smaller professional orchestras, but Houston has vital, amazing things like Texas Medical Center Orchestra, um, Woodlands, all these places that are amateur orchestras that really great. And that's the lifeblood of what our world does too. 
Amazing. Thank you so much for spending the hour with us to close. Could you let our listeners know where to find you on the internet and where to find Roco, how to hear you, that type of thing? Sure. Roco.org. It's pretty easy. And if you, if you see my car, I have Roco plates with a .org sticker next to it. Um, so, <laughs> I, hope <it> don't, <laughs> I hope I don't cut you off in traffic. But um, so yeah, Roku.org. And I, I will tell you this, um, on our website is all of the past performances for free listening because I pay my musicians for limited pressing and rights to use and publishers for use of that. We're one of the few American orchestras that can do that. And so you can hear all the past music. You can go hear my Tombo, You can go hear all those, those solos. Um, but there's also just some really fine, especially, oh, yes, Alyssa Morris amazing composer she wrote a trio mm-hmm. called knickknack for us knickknack with nathan alicia Kristen um for the clarinet oboe bassoon you have to go hear it we performed mm-hmm. it so many times we're actually performing it in boston in june for the women's um composers co- conference um so i say knickknack rides again but it's um it's a piece you have to play bottles you have to play with your foot a block while you're playing the oboe it's it's really very difficult but it's a phenomenal piece and please go listen to her stuff um she's i'm sure you know her she's amazing um but yeah on her website roco.org so you can go do that and every main concert we have next year which is september 28th and then we have one in november and february and may you can live stream our concerts anywhere in the world so at roco.org at five o'clock central on those dates you can tune in and that app i talked about you can use that as well so it's on Facebook Live. But yeah, please go find us. Go connect in alicia at Please ask questions, um, join Facebook, all that stuff. We'd love to talk to you and, and keep the pilot light in all of us. Thank you so much, Alicia. It's been such a joy to talk to you. We really appreciate having you on the podcast. Thank you so much for helping spread the Roku's here. We hope you love that interview as much as we did. As always, you can find us on iTunes, SoundCloud, Google Play, our freshly updated YouTube channel. So please subscribe on there. Leave us comments. We love to read them. Instagram, Facebook, Twitter, all of the places. And you can always email us at doublereaddish at gmail.com. We love hearing from you. For our next episode, we will be, be <laughs> we will be welcoming bassoonist Saxton Rose, principal bassoon of the Winston Salem Symphony and associate professor at UNC School of the Arts. What time is it? What is our tagline? Got <laughs> it. Oh, Jackie. time to end this nerd parade. Go make reads. <laughs>